Now, today, we continue on in the series on the Psalms. We took a little mini break last week. Uh, know that anytime we do drama, there are going to be those that connect with it and find it to be so helpful, and some will not, and uh, that's fine. Uh, we took a little mini break last week, and, and so this week we're getting back into the Psalms. And today is about our favorite topic in the world, one that we all have been chomping at the here. How do we pray the imprecatory Psalms? Just sort of brings a balm to your soul just hearing the word, doesn't it? Now, what in the world do we even mean by an imprecatory psalm? I would venture to say that most of us, when we came upon reading one of these in the Old Testament, probably had one of two reactions. Our reaction may have been, okay, David or or some other psalmist is saying this, and uh, wow, I'm glad that's in the Old Testament. And thank goodness we live in the New Testament, and thank goodness for Jesus. And that would be a wrong way to view it. It's not a stupid way. It's it's just the wrong way to view it, because all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful and profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. So whether it's from Genesis 1 or all the way through Revelation 21, it's all inspired by God and all useful. Another reaction we may have had when we read some of these psalms, the imprecatory psalms, we may have read it and sort of winced a little bit and said, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm going to read the next psalm. Not really sure how we're supposed to approach these things. The Psalms are God's prayers given to his people for all of life's ups and downs. His prayers given to his people to be prayed to him for his glory, and they're for all of life's ups and downs. We said the confession Psalms help us to draw near God when we sin. So what in the world are we going to think about these imprecatory Psalms? Let me set it up with this way. We all have thought about vengeance. Every one of us at some point have thought serious, sincere thoughts about vengeance. You can't watch the news and not have at some level something stir up inside of you about wrongs that are being committed against others. You can't watch what's going on throughout the world. And have no response whatsoever. It would be abnormal. It would be unhealthy if we were to see many of the circumstances that happen in life. And for us just to simply sit back and say, you know what? No big deal. I just hope God loves and blesses everyone. I don't think that would be a healthy response. How about in your, the lives of those that you love? We all know at least one person who had something so evil happened to them that we wouldn't wish it on our worst enemy. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's you. We all know somebody that has had something happen to them that they did not deserve, and it was something that was taken out on them uh, with no justifiable cause whatsoever. And, and it stirs up inside of us. At the very least, it stirs up inside of us a desire that something will happen to them. And for the overwhelming majority of us, it stirs up some type of a thought of vengeance. What do I mean by vengeance? Mary Webster says this, it's punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or offense. We all have thought about it. 
When, when pain is inflicted upon others without justifiable cause, we want justice to be inflicted upon others. Please hear me. The desire for justice is a good thing. The desire for pain to stop is a good thing. Some of us have gone further in our minds and we've played out scenarios in which we might be the agent of God's justice and vengeance being brought in that process. Now, if you've never had one of those thoughts, I apologize that I'm taking you down some type of dark road. But the overwhelming majority of us have had at least some thought of being able to do to someone else what we really want to happen to them when they've done something to someone else we really, really love that we didn't want to happen to them. We all have thought about vengeance. So what is it we should do with those thoughts? Would it shock you? Would it surprise you if I said, I think the scriptures have given us a way to pray? When we have those desires, thoughts, um, I, I think the scriptures have given us a great guide to know how to draw near to God and how to bring our requests before him. The imprecatory Psalms will help us pray for vindication while leaving vengeance in the hands of the Lord. I'll say it again. The imprecatory Psalms will help us pray for vindication while leaving vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Vindicate, according to Merriam-Webster, once again, says to free from allegation or of, uh, of blame. Now, what exactly is an imprecatory psalm? There are other definitions that probably would be better. I want to give you a definition that I find just to be helpful. It's, uh, it's simple. It's, it's one that I came up with, so it's lacking probably the totality of thought in it. However, I think it is a good guide for us, and it's true. An imprecatory psalm is a sacred Hebrew poem asking for God's judgment on God's enemies. It's a, it's a, a sacred Hebrew poem in which it is asking for God to bring about his justice on his enemies. It's a prayer saying, God, would you deal with people in your way? Now, one little um, addendum to that, I think we ought to add, if you want to add a dot, dot, dot at the end uh, for us, maybe it's in parentheses, uh, whatever you want to put in there. It's asking for this with the understanding of that that's going to happen in God's timing and in God's way. So here's the beauty of praying an imprecatory psalm. I can bring my emotion, I can bring all to the Lord, and I can say, oh, God, would you deal with this? And then I've got to wrestle with and eventually ask for peace to come, that God's going to do it in his timing, and he's going to do it in his way. And you know what happens some of the times when we pray these, when those in the Scripture pray these? Remember this kind of terminology in the Scriptures? Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem as though there are those who are doing evil things to people throughout the world and it seems as though they're not paying the price right now? But yet, God, when I look at my life, it seems like the smallest of slip-ups that I have seem to be made very large in your eyes and it's a big deal. In fact, it's very, very public. So why is it that those who do evil against other people intentionally, methodically, why are they getting away with it? And I do it something which seems far less, in there, and, and it seems as though you're making a much bigger deal out of it. The imprecatory psalms give us a way for God 
to vindicate his name. Last little thing we need to hear before we dive into to this text in Psalm 69. This is really important. When we are going to pray the imprecatory psalms, what we must understand is that we have to have the shift in our hearts where it goes from exclusively about vindicating us. It moves from exclusively about vindicating us to now really the driving side of it is about God vindicating himself. Meaning that he is going to clarify, clear up his name in the public eye. Now, what did the devil do for years and years and years before Christ gets on the cross? The devil goes to God and he says, God, you see all this over here? You haven't done anything about it. The nations mock you. And that has been happening even since the cross. The name of God is mocked all of the time. A comedian that I find to be very funny, very thoughtful, and very uh, blasphemous at times is a man named George Carlin. He is no longer here um, on the earth. A brilliant man, incredibly insightful, and, and oftentimes very, very funny. I want you to hear what he has to say. This is in one of his uh, stand-up routines in which he was pointing out the stupidity of religion. He is talking specifically about um, uh, one of the reasons why he doesn't believe that there is a God is because of all of the wrong that's going on in the world. He says this, something is wrong here. War, disease, death, destruction, hunger, filth, poverty, torture, crime, corruption, and the ice capades. Something is definitely wrong. This is not good work. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Results like these do not belong on the resume of a supreme being. This is the kind of stuff you'd expect from an office temp with a bad attitude. And just between you and me and any decently run universe, this guy would have been out a long time ago. So if there is a God, I think most reasonable people might agree that he's at least incompetent and maybe just maybe doesn't give a rip. Doesn't give a rip, which I admire in a person and which would explain a lot of these bad results. You do realize that there are many rational thinking, intelligent human beings who look at the universe, who look at the world and come to the conclusion there simply cannot be a God because if there is a God who is all powerful, all wise, can do anything that he wants and he chooses to leave the universe running in the condition that it's in, then that is not a God that I want anything to do with. So therefore, I come to the conclusion there can't be some sort of all-supreme being who has the ability to make things right but chooses not to do it just yet. There are many, many rational, intelligent, kind, compassionate people who come to this conclusion. You know what's at the heart of the imprecatory prayers? It's not primarily about God vindicate me, although we should do that. We have a model for it. We should be praying, God vindicate me. That's a good thing. The heart of it is, God, clear up your name. In front of a watching world, would you cause people to see you as you really are? That's the heart behind an imprecatory prayer. We have a psalm Bible study that is taking place right now, and it is... Um, it's just wonderful what's happening. Tuesday mornings, Sunday nights, there's a class on Sunday mornings that meets right now. And the lady who taught this particular week, the lady here in our congregation, just did a magnificent job of teaching this week. And I want you to know I'm going to steal from her. 
I'm going to take some of her terminology because I could not improve on it. Powerful story that she shared um, with us. And um, uh, she says uh, this, and so I just uh, pass it on. Imprecatory Psalms often follow a pattern, and here's the pattern. And I don't know if I got this up on the screen or not. If I didn't, and you're a note taker, take notes, it's worth it. Here's a psalm, uh, the pattern that it often follows. I'm in there. Observe and lament. So when we're praying the, the, the imprecatory psalms, the first thing we can do is to observe and to lament. Observe the situation and the circumstances that are taking place in life. And lament, meaning this, let the pain sit in. Don't just try to get very quickly past the pain of what it is that you are currently experiencing. You see something that is wrong in the world, something that causes you to have anger um, at sin, something that, that, that causes you to say, God, would you do something about it? Don't try to gloss over that pain too quickly. Let it sit for a little bit while you are praying to God. Observe and lament is the first pattern that we see in the precatory Psalms. The second thing that we see is confess and appeal. Confess your own sin. Acknowledge your own wrongdoing, not maybe necessarily in this particular circumstance, but just your own sin in general. Help to come to the place in life where you're seeing, but by the grace of God, there go I. Confess your own shortcomings, your own sin, and appeal. That is to ask God for help in the situation. Do you see the help in this pattern so far? I want to simply uh, observe what's going on, acknowledge what's going on, see what's going on, let the pain sit in, and then rather than me personally being overwhelmed with that sin that causes me to move and take action with vengeance, I then confess before God, I, here I am in the process, and now, God, would you do something about it? So before I move in and do anything about it, I've sat and I've, and I've asked, God, would you handle this? How much sin, how much pain, how much hurt might be avoided if we just did this? Acknowledge what's going on. Call it rightly. But before taking matters into our own hands, go to God and ask him to take matters into his hands. Observe and lament, confess and appeal. And then the third, uh, pattern, the third part of the pattern we see is that there is praise and promise. Praise. I want to remember the character of God. I want to remember who he is. What does the scriptures reveal about him? What do I know to be true about him? Because if I make judgments about God based on what's going on in the world, a la George Carlin, a la many others, if I make judgments about God based on what's going on in the world, then I'm going to have a bad understanding of who God is. But if I see and judge the events of the world that are gone through the lens and the character of the revealed God through his word, then I can make much better sense of the universe. Praise him or remember the character of God and then promise. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the promises of God. Remember that God said he is going to do something about it. Remember the words of the scriptures. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. God said that. He might let them go a long, long time in this lifetime. And you may never see the result of God bringing about his justice on his enemies. 
But I assure you there's a day coming in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So observe and lament, confess and appeal, and then praise and promise. Last piece of information. Imprecatory psalms in many ways are asking for God to do the either or. Either cause the people who are doing these things right now, individual acts or ongoing sustained things, whatever it may be, either cause them to repent, to turn away from self on the throne, turn to Christ on the throne, leave the life behind. Either cause them to repent, Lord, to bow the knee of submission to you, or if they're not going to do that, then or, God, would you remove them from a place of influence in the world? Either cause them to come to you. Option A, I really would like to see this, Lord. It seems to me you would get more honor, more glory from lives that get turned around who would be able to tell stories about what you've done in their life. If they're not going to do it, then God, would you limit the damage that's going to take place and would you remove them from a place of influence on the earth? Both of these are vindicating the name of God. Now, if you have your Bibles open with me to Psalm chapter 69, and I'm going to summarize a good portion of this. I'm going to have a stand and read in honor of the word itself. Just a portion. It'll be verses whoop, uh, 22 to uh, 28. Psalm 69. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You may be seated. Now try reading that section of the scriptures over and over again. See what that does to your mind and heart. Psalm 69 is a psalm, an imprecatory psalm, and I want to just summarize as much as I can. In verses 1 through 12, as well as verses 19 and 21, David is hurting. And he's hurting really for four reasons. Number one, he's hurting because some are against him. We see that in the first four verses. Some are against him. They're against him for, for uh, three, uh, three explanations he gives for that. Number one, he says that they're against him for no really good reason at all. They're just against him. You do realize you're going to have some people in life that are just against you, correct? I mean, I would love to think that I'm so winsome and engaging all the time and so nice and kind and compassionate that everybody on planet Earth would say, golly, that Dave, he's just a good dude. Like that guy. Talks a little too much, but man, do I really like that guy. There's going to be some people in life that just don't like you just because. There's no real good reason. Secondly, it says that they insult him. He is enduring his enemies mocking. It tells us that in verses 10 and 12 as well as 19 and 20. Not only do they not like him, they actually are mocking him, poking 
fun of him. Now, isn't this one of those that we as adults now, especially when we see this going on in the lives of young people, isn't this one that you just rise up? Especially if there are those who are easy prey. Maybe they have some challenges in life cognitively. And when they get mocked and picked on, doesn't that just stir something inside of you? Unfortunately, that's life. He's insulted. He is mocked. It tells us in verse 21 that they give him poison for food and sour wine for a drink. Hey, man, want to have a taste? Now, the metaphor here is clear. Appearing to give something that is beneficial and good, all the while, ultimately, what's behind it is to trap you, to ensnare you, to do something that they can actually bring harm to you. He is hurting because of his own choices. In verses 5 and 6, some of David's pain is coming from his own doggone sin. Choices that he made, he brought it upon himself. He's got nobody to blame. In verse 8, he tells us that his family has actually turned against him. So he's in pain because of his family. In verses 7 as well as 9, it tells us that David is hurting specifically because of his faith. He is being mocked for his belief, and he is insulted when people insult the person of God. Have you had to do that before? What if you were there when George Carlin was presenting this uh, material? What would stir it up inside of you? Over many years, I have listened to those who make claims about the person of God that are so false, so erroneous, so untrue. And there's a portion of me that is just think, oh, if you just had a different view, if you just saw the reality of it, part of me is doing that, and part of me says you're mocking something. You have no idea how much you're flirting right now with danger. David is insulted because people are insulting his dad, his father. Years ago in a softball game, my brothers and I were playing, and this gentleman said some things about my earthly father who was playing in the game, and he said some things that were just way out of bounds. And both of my brothers and I had a very, very calm, easy, gracious response to it. Church softball. We didn't feel very churched at the moment. How do you feel when folks attack your dad? David is hurting, and so he brings that to the Lord. But David is also praying. And it tells us that he's praying for himself. I'm not going to summarize each of them, but in verses 13 through 18, David is ultimately asking for God to rescue him. Now, to the imprecatory aspects of the psalm. In verse 22, David prays this. He asks for God to remove their peace. He's actually asking for God to remove something inside of them that is causing them to be internally a bit tranquil, a bit at ease. In other words, whatever's going on the outside, whatever their decisions are, it's not bothering their conscience at all. And so the first thing that David prays for is God remove their peace. Don't allow them to go in life in such a manner that they are unbothered by what it is that they are doing. 
Don't allow them to, 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 to continue this. Let their table, let it become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. When they think that what they are doing in order to take advantage of others is benefiting them, God, would you actually cause it to turn on its head and would you cause them to have all kinds of anxiety inside? What a great prayer. For we never will have true peace. We will never have the peace of God until we first have peace with God. And so what he's asking is those that are not walking with you, that are mocking you, insulting you, would you cause them to not be at peace with the direction of their life? What a great prayer. In verse 23, he asks for God to make their blindness actually permanent. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continue. Make their blindness permanent. They are right now, Lord, in such a posture and a position that they're not acknowledging you. They're not seeing you. They're not giving you credit. They're, they're, uh, would you cause their eyes to go blind just permanent, just remove all vision, period? Either bring them to a place where they're going to repent or, God, just remove them. Because they're spreading all kinds of false accusations about their all kinds of lies, et cetera, about you. I, God, vindicate your name. Make their blindness permanent. In verse 24, he asks for God to pour out his wrath on them. Now let that sit for just a minute. He is looking upward. He is recognizing what has happened out there. He's sat on it. He's, he's observed. He's, he's lamented. He's, he's, he's let the pain sit in. And he's now saying, oh, God, would you pour out your wrath upon them? Now, this is a guy that has a lot of influence and a lot of power. And yet he's restraining. He's asking for God to take matters into his hands rather than him take matters into his own hands. I've known some folks over the years that have looked at these prayers and have said uh, that these prayers are not um, in any way um, um, consistent with what it might be to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm sitting here thinking, can there, any be, can there be anything more consistent with being a follower of Jesus? I'm going to let God handle it rather than me. What does it mean for God to pour out his wrath upon someone? It means for him to bring about his divine judgment upon their soul. And this is what David is praying. Verse 25, he gets very explicit. He tells us, tells, ask God rather to, to remove their influence. May their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. No other ears that are around to hear what's going on. No multiplication. No more pattern that goes on. Oh, no. no more echoing that's going on about all the things about you that are untrue. Remove their peace. Permanently blind them. Pour out your wrath upon them. Remove their influence from the earth itself. Look at verses 26 and 27. Where he says, 
to, for God to give them over to their sin. For they persecute him who you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment that they may have no acquittal from you. Give them over to their sin. In other words, remove your hand of common grace from them. Let the restraints come off, the training wheels come off. No longer are you holding them back from becoming as evil as they would become and let them taste the full bitterness of what it's like to pursue a lifestyle of sin. Because it will be miserable. David is looking at the world and he's, he's looking at those in it and he's saying, I don't want the world to experience life without you. So if they're going to continue on and be stubborn and refuse to repent and bow the knee of submission before you, if they're not going to come to you and acknowledge that who you are is who you are, if they're not going to do it, then God just hand them over and let them get as miserable as they're going to become and then just wipe them out. Now, I'm not trying to put a spin on this. I'm really not. Please hear this. David is actually asking for something that is gracious. God, deal with them severely, yes. But don't let it affect the rest of the world. So just hand them over and let the world look in and see that is utter folly. I don't want to go that direction. Small scale, ask my little brother what it was like to look at me when he was in seventh grade and I was a senior in high school. I've heard him share this before. He watched the direction I was going in, a direction not Godward in nature at all, pursuing um, what I wanted to do when I wanted to. My little brother looked at that and said, well, I don't want to do that. That's dumb. Hand him over, God. Let him taste the fullness. And then finally, verse 28, he Again, gets explicit with it. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And he's saying it explicitly right here. He's asked for these things all along the way. But right here at the end, he just says, God, just permanently separate them from you and from us. Take their lives. Do you hear? We have a pattern to pray. Not a formula. God has given us permission to pray this very thing. We get a chance to come and say, God, either do this or do this. And we have a model in the scriptures, God's prayers given to his people for all of life's ups and downs. Now, thank goodness that something happened a couple thousand years ago. Because as I go through this psalm, I, I just can't help but wonder, whose peace had been removed? Who left his throne above and, and came down and, and, and then walked among us? And there was a moment specifically on the cross in which he was filled, not with overwhelming peace. He was filled with anxiety. He was filled with, with, with uh, the, the separation that took place um, with God, not wanting at all to have even a second worth of separation. Who had peace removed from them for a moment? 
When it says to make their blindness permanent, who is the only one capable of giving someone sight? Who is the one who restored physically some of the people's vision here on earth, but who is the one who brings about spiritual vision to see God for who he is? Who showed up and walked among us and showed us exactly what God was like? Who was the best representation of it? Who was the one who had God's wrath poured out upon him? Who was the one who destroyed the work of the devil? The one who removed all influence that the evil one would have over the world. Before he came on the scene, all the nations, we are told, were deceived in the process. They were incapable of seeing the truth unless God's Spirit did a unique work. Now Jesus then destroyed the work of the devil, and now the gospel is going forth throughout the entirety of the globe. Who has removed the influence of the evil one in, in, in portions and stages right now? Who will remove it permanently? Who Who took on the sins? Give them over. The Who took on all of the sins upon himself? And then finally, who gave up his life? In the final six verses in here, David is praising God for hearing his prayer and he's praising God for helping his people. David knows that God will ultimately vindicate his name. He knows that God is ultimately going to deal with all of those who mock and insult, etc. He knows that there is coming a time in which God is going to do something in which no one can any longer rightfully, truthfully point and say, God is not going to do something about the sin problem. And when Jesus came to the earth and went up on a cross, Jesus vindicated in the ultimate sense the name of the Father. Yes, he died for your sins. Yes, he died because he loves you. But do you know the driving reason why Jesus died was to vindicate the name of God Almighty because all of the world had been hearing from the evil one over and over again. God doesn't do anything with sin. God's not going to act. And God did act once and for all times. And now all those who come by faith can receive. Can I challenge you with this in the last 50 seconds? <laughs> I want to challenge you to think how it is that you might pray the imprecatory psalms. See, I'm convinced that the principles of the imprecatory psalms are not just and only to be prayed for those who do gross injustices throughout the world. I pray these same kind of prayers for denominations who leave the gospel. For those churches who abandon the truthfulness of the scriptures. God, would you either bring them to a place of repentance or would you remove them and cause them to have no influence whatsoever in the world? We here at Wildwood pray regularly for other churches. And we don't agree with everything that every church says in here in town. And, and churches that we pray for, I assure you, we don't agree on everything there is to agree on. But we agree on the big ones. And I have no problem whatsoever praying for those churches who don't do that. Me praying, God, remove them, dry them up. Let no one else go to these churches. May people go in and find the hopelessness of learning something only from Time Magazine rather than learning something from your word. I want to pray these same prayers for those that I love as well. For those that are not walking with the Lord. I want to pray that God would bring them to a place where they don't have peace in the current direction of their life. 
I want to pray that he, at some appropriate level, hands them over just enough so when they get overwhelmed with their sin, they fall flat on their face, and the only place they have is to look up. I want to pray that my kids, or me, or you, if we start going down a road which is separate from God, I want to pray these same principles so that God would vindicate his name over the whole globe. We all have thought about vengeance. The imprecatory Psalms give us words to pray for God's vindication and leave vengeance up to him.